Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising who wants ideas and maybe a dose of encouragement to help you grow your confidence, raise more money and really enjoy your job. And this time we're looking at ways to shift power within a charity to people who have lived experience of the issue that the charity addresses. This summer, I went to a fascinating session at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Convention, delivered by Lulu Smithick and Shukri Adan, about the progress that's been made at the charity Refugee Action in recent years. In particular, they talked about initiatives that shift power in terms of fundraising, and how this is paying off in various ways, including the improvement of results. So here is the first half of my recent chat with Lulu, who is Senior Public Fundraising Manager, and Shukri, who has been an expert by experience fundraising advisor for Refugee Action. Well, hello, Shukri, and hello, Lulu. Welcome to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. Hello. Welcome. So months ago, I sat in a really excellent talk you both gave at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Convention. And let me get the title right. It was something like Shifting Power, Beneficiary-Led Fundraising. And um, it was really well attended and also testament to how interested the fundraising audience was is there were lots and lots of questions and varied questions at the end. Uh, and you could barely get out the door because there was a queue of people wanting to ask you more and more about it. And I found it really interesting. I learned a lot. And I do think it's such an important topic that many charities are trying to get better at, certainly should be trying to get better at this notion of how to shift power uh, and put people who have lived experience of the issue the charity serves, how to involve them genuinely at the heart of what the, the, the charity does. My sense is some charities do that quite well in certain ways, but not necessarily the, including fundraising. So I'm getting ahead of myself. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners will learn a lot from you too. Just before we get into what you did and what you continue to do, Lulu, first, could you tell me your role at the charity? Sure. Yeah, I'm Lulu. Um, so I'm the Senior Public Fundraising Manager at Refugee Action. Great. Thank you. And Shukri, how about your role? Yeah, my name is Shukri. Um, uh, I'm, I worked with the Refugee Action as an expert by experience fundraising advisor. And at the moment, I work as a welfare rights advisor with Coventry Independent Advice Service. Great. Okay, thank you. And um, maybe a little later, it would be interesting, Shukri, to get your sense of, of how Refugee actually got in touch and your motivations for getting involved and helping and so on. But maybe the starting point, Lulu, is about the catalyst and in terms of your charity and the leadership team in your charity, what their stated objective is and their intention is in terms of shifting power. So when I arrived at Refugee Action back in 2020, and the work in shifting power was already underway and it was definitely something our senior leadership team at the time and still wanted to focus on as one of our key priorities as a charity. So kind of at Refugee Action, we try and go by the, the motto that we do not exist to work for people seeking safety, but with them to empower them to take control and influence the issues that matter to them. And when I started at there, within the team, I was the individual game manager when I started, and I could kind of tell that 
though that work was doing really well throughout the charity fundraising and particularly individual giving fundraising was an area that it was weaker and it was also I could tell that there was a bit of a disconnect with individual giving and some of the other teams particularly around people feeling uncomfortable sometimes about the narratives that were shared and within our service teams and within the charity as a whole so a key priority when I came into that role was looking at how to build back up those relationships, but also looking at how to bring that shifting power work into fundraising and into our individual giving specifically. And I worked very closely with our expert by experience manager and our stories and communications officer who were both really keen to also do this work. And we sort of spoke about different ways we could do it. And we liked the idea originally of just like a big workshop day where we focus on one of our appeals and sort of map it out. And that we're all going to meet together. We sort of recruited a fantastic bunch of people and we had it all planned. And then COVID happened and we had to rejig the idea of doing a day on Zoom was a bit much, I think, for everyone involved. And with that, we actually thought this could be an opportunity. There was more of a desire for virtual meetings and there was also more capability at Refugee Action. Like we didn't really have much of the virtual meeting capability before COVID. It was something we upgraded very fast. And so we looked at instead doing bi-weekly, so every other week, doing a two-hour meeting and actually seeing a bit more of the growth of the appeal. And it all sort of went on from there. We um, slowly brought in other areas of fundraising and looked at how we could be really using this strategy long-term and working with all of these brilliant minds and brilliant people long-term, rather than just seeing it as a one-campaign-specific project. That's Mm. such an interesting approach. Shukri, in a moment, I'd be curious as to, to how the charity got in touch in the first place. But just on this subject that Lulu said, in terms of meeting frequently, I think it was every two or three weeks with Lulu and her colleagues for input. What's your take on that versus if it had gone the other way? I think at the time, because it was uh, during a pandemic, it was easier to meet every two two weeks virtually. I think if we were out of the pandemic and we had to do it face to face, I don't really know how that would have worked. I think it would have been a lot difficult, you know, transport, having to pay for transport to get to the place. Having those meetings frequently would have been, yeah, I think there would have been a difficulty, but having them online made it a lot easier for us to to meet and I, I think a safe space as well using zoom as I say you know you're behind a laptop or you're not in person and I think that helped kind of um, build trust among us and yeah because we're not seeing people in person but you know you're in your own comfort zone so yeah that I think that helped as well that makes sense and I think many charities don't have this kind of role or voluntary role in terms of expert-led, how would you define what that role was for how you gave input to help the charity with its fundraising? And also just going back a tiny bit as to how do they get in touch and what was your motivations for getting involved? Um, Yeah, so I joined Refugee Action in 2019 because uh, actually I got in touch with Refugee Action. I, I emailed the campaigns team. Um, at that time, I was, I, was, I was homeless at the time. So I was experienced as an asylum seeker. Uh, I, I really wanted to raise awareness of the difficulties that asylum seekers experience. Um, and I sent an email to the campaigns team asking them that I'd like to be involved in the campaigns. And I actually ended up writing a letter to because it was also a general election in 2019 so during that campaign I wrote a letter and it was really about uh, would politicians walk in the shoes of an asylum seeker 
And that was that was my letter to supporters, my letter to everyone on the difficulties I was experiencing homelessness. I had no right to work as well. So there was things I thought needed to be shared with the public. Um, but yeah, that's how I got in touch. And I eventually joined the Experts by Experience fundraising group the following year. They got in touch and said, if you'd like to be a guest editor <laughs> in the newsletter, because there was also... One of the contents was the uh, fighting for the right to work, which I was really interested in. So, yeah, uh, that's how I got involved. And I think it was also really important to me to have a sense of purpose during that time, having not being able to work. I wanted to also learn more about fundraising and what fundraising involves within the charity sector. And I'm, re I'm really grateful that <laughs> I managed to join the group. It was a cause that was really important to me as, as an asylum seeker at that time and now as a refugee. Thank you very much, Shukri. And I thought that was a really interesting element that came out in the talk that you guys did in that each time you met, the charity was absolutely benefiting from your ideas and input in terms of making the fundraising, in that case, the fundraising appeal better. But most times there was also this element of training or information that would give you skills generally. So if I could come back to Lulu, top line, what was the structure of those biweekly sessions and anything you think the listeners might be interested in? In about how you went about doing both the training bit, but then also seeking the advice and ideas from the group? Back when we launched, again, we did see training as a really key part, but in terms of structure, structure was something we really built as we went. We really wanted to get started as soon as possible, and we knew that if we started with trying to get the perfect structure and trying to do it right straight away, we could be planning it forever. So we sort of set up the first meeting. Our expert by experience manager was really experienced in doing those kind of meetings with groups and he, he gave us some really great advice. So we sort of started with a um, icebreaker to put everyone at ease and we sort of talked through what we were sort of thinking the group would be and asked people sort of what they thought of fundraising and what their knowledge already was of fundraising so we could get an idea of where we were starting from and also what people's expectations were of the group and what they wanted it to be. Um, so we saw that kind of first session as much more of just stepping away from the appeal, stepping away from what we wanted to get out of it and just checking in what um, the group wanted to get out of it and why they had joined us. Um, and we did sort of see from there a couple of clear directions that we wanted to then take through throughout that. Um, one of them was an interest in training and development, but a big part of it was the control of the narrative and also the opportunities to be creative and just do something a bit different. So we usually aimed to try and have a bit on a sort of have a training element each time. And we would bring in people within the team who had specific skill sets. So our data manager ran a session on GDPR um, and on how we run a data selection and why we, why we select data in that way. So we were kind of giving that overview. And especially with the appeal, we were working to try and tell the story of how you develop an appeal. So like we'd, we started with creating a creative brief altogether. Um, and what sort of questions we would ask ourselves as fundraisers um, to write a creative brief we'd be asking with the group and we'd be brainstorming it all together, which is how we developed our concept. Um, and then we did sessions on copywriting and sessions on certain things. But we always were trying to get a bit of an equal weight. I think one of the things we learned from our first year of it was we could definitely do better. We, we, we 
we were working towards it, but I think it was near the end that we really sort of started to see how we wanted that structure to be going throughout. And with the feedback of the group and the responses we were getting from the group, and we did surveys and feedback sessions, we are now relaunching with a much clearer structure where the first hour is training and the training, what the trainings will be, will be shared six months in advance and people will be able to see which, what, what they'll be getting out of it really. And then the second session will be the creative working together on something to do with fundraising. So well done to all concerned in spending the time doing this work to really find ways to make the fundraising appeal itself better. I think one of the main projects was a Christmas cash appeal, Lulu, you mentioned. And in a moment, I'd love to get a sense of some of the things that might have made it better. But I think I wrote down from your session that just in numerical terms, working this way was worth it for fundraising. It did raise more money. Yes, yes, definitely. So year on year, we saw an increase. Our income was up by about 20k. And there were a couple of reasons beyond the group for that in terms of it was a wider audience we went out to. But even so, with that taken into account, we were 10k above our target. So we saw a 25% increase on the target which had already taken into account that wider audience. Hi it's Rob and I wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about our two flagship courses designed to help you grow high value fundraising results. That's the Major Gifts Mastery Program and the Corporate Mastery Program. Rather than have me tell you about how they work I thought it would be most interesting if you could hear from someone who's done one of these courses recently. So here is a short clip from Sam Harford who is a philanthropy officer at the British Red Cross talking about her experience. Hi, my name is Sam and I'm a philanthropy officer for the British Red Cross. Um, If you want to improve your major donor approaches and raise more money for your charity, I would really, really recommend Rob's Major Donor Mastery course. It was absolutely fantastic for me and built my confidence so much. And I really began to change my mindset and start focusing on cultivating for major donor relationships rather than major donor gifts. Since joining the programme, I've raised over £600,000 in pledges and donations. So I'm really grateful for all of the support and guidance from Rob. If you'd like to find out more about either the Major Gifts Mastery Programme or the Corporate Mastery Programme, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, though, let's get back to my interview with Shukri and Lulu about shifting power in fundraising. If you were to put your finger on any of the things in hindsight these things I think helped achieve that progress compared to the results last year what were any of those? I think one of the reasons why the Christmas cash appeal was successful was because I think as a group collectively we had a shared understanding of what Christmas meant to us and I think we all felt as a group that Christmas was an isolating experience but we also wanted supporters to celebrate people seeking asylum and their skills so I think having that shared understanding of being in the asylum system helped us build trust among the group and making it a safe place, safe place to share our experiences and feedback into the Christmas cash appeal. But also the fact that we wanted to celebrate people, you know, one of the participants suggested that the Christmas cash appeal should be written by one of uh, the participants who was a master's student who, on human rights. And we wanted to share that, you know, um, positive, skilled uh 
you know, talented people. Um, yeah, I think that would be one of the reasons the Christmas cash pill was successful out of the top of my head as well. I think the creativity that came out of it, you know, I suggested, for example, the Christmas baubles. We should have one Christmas bauble for the supporter and one that's sent to the beneficiaries. And I think that 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 personal touch made it more successful yeah in, in that way so that's really interesting just in terms of the detail of that uh, so it was a, a letter that supporters received but what was the thing with the baubles was that a physical it, object it was a christmas bauble uh, that had been not, not a physical a paper one a drawing that was actually drawn by anna's daughter so she drew this beautiful christmas bauble and normally i think refugee action only sent one to the supporter but this time round we got one to be sent to the supporter and the other one to be sent to the beneficiary so that they could write a positive message on on the bauble i think we had really beautiful uh, messages coming back for people who could read messages of hope really but yeah i think that made it touching and personal yeah thank you shukri anything you would add to that lulu your take on why this year's cash appeal raised more money? Um, I think I'd echo, echo kind of a lot of what Shikli said there. So much of it, I think it had a certain like genuineness to it because it came from that group who understood the situation way more than me or my colleagues who would usually write the appeals could ever have. And it had that sort of honesty to it and it really changed completely how we did every appeal from then. Each one, even if we didn't do it with a group, it was much more led by whoever story it was and they would have a lot more say. I think the bauble is, like you mentioned, is such a strong example because from that creative workshop session at the beginning, one of the things that was keep coming out was creating a, a connection between the um, supporter and the people with lived experience. And that was echoed in a lot of the written supporter feedback we got. So supporters were, were actually getting in touch with us and saying that they felt this connection from that bauble. And so it was just such a tangible way we saw that appeal change. The other thing was like an impact flyer. So again, how I should have said, part of it was part of the concept was about sort of questioning people, how people see things and, and the media narrative around people seeking asylum and showing that actually these people are bringing so many skills and so much passion, so much stuff that should be celebrated. And we wanted that in our appeal too. So we created this flyer where we were really celebrating what people with lived experience had done for our communities during COVID. One of the group suggested actually that we extend that flyer to also with telling a supporter story about something a supporter's done during that time and again creating that connection and showing this kind of togetherness throughout and I think that was really a big theme of the appeal that resonated a lot with people. Thank you both I just get such a strong sense that of course you ended up with a better piece of fundraising because of getting different people's points of view especially people's points of view who really had a deep understanding of the issue just while we're on that, one of my favourite books of the last five years is called Rebel Ideas. It's by Matthew Said, and it makes quite emphatically the case that obviously many organisations, we need to do better and do our best in terms of involving you know, a range of people, diverse voices. Of course, that's appropriate and it's morally the right thing to do. But he also emphatically in this book, Rebel Ideas, just points out that you just avoid group thinking that way of course you're going to get better ideas if you haven't got you're not only asking for people who have a similar background 
or ethnicity, for instance, or culture, for instance? Lulu, I don't know if that sort of resonates with your experience of just the kind of good ideas that were coming out that that you or your colleague might not have thought of on your own. Definitely. I think that was sort of the theme of pretty much every meeting we had. If we're sticking to the Christmas appeal, I think some of the part of it as well is being as close to the past appeals, like the past mailings we'd done, actually really helped improve them. So, for example, one of the members asked us why our packs, our Christmas packs were always orange, that it wasn't a Christmassy colour and it wasn't even one of our main brand covers. And it was just something we'd we'd kept the envelopes as orange because we're always working from the same templates and going, oh, well, our supporters are going to expect a square orange envelope. But when we were sort of directly asked that question, we were like, yes, that is that is a bit weird. Um, and we changed it to a green envelope with white snowflakes and it made it a much nicer, much Christmassier looking pack. So it's just even like having this group of people that we could go to who had such like a passion for the creative side of it and like for making things better and for not just settling with what we'd done before, I think was so profitable from having this group. It was just, yeah, an amazing group of people full of amazing ideas. And I just felt so lucky that we could get to speak with them every other week. Yeah, that has come across so clearly in your talk originally and, and the kinds of things you've been saying. Is there anything else you wanted to share on that, Shukri? No, I, I really agree with uh, Lulu. I think the fact that we were so passionate about the appeals and we wanted to make sure that our point came across, you know, just even like images, you know, people smiling. We wanted people to smile. It's all not, it's not doom and gloom every time, you know, we wanted people who, yeah, we, we wanted to show that, you know, there's happiness and there's joy during Christmas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And that comes back to one of the early points you were both making about the importance of, those with an experience having the right and the desire to influence the narrative and the tone exactly and maybe going away from fundraising momentarily shukri i got a strong sense that i think lots of charities want to do this but with pressure on time and resources and so on even a well-meaning fundraising organization could inadvertently do it in a in a slightly tokenistic way or just not quite an appropriate way and so they might get some of these benefits in terms of these good ideas and improving the fundraising but it might not be genuinely done the right way for the group could you give the listeners any advice on how refugee action seemed to go about it because i got a strong sense that it was done right apart from anything else lulu said we (laughs) we we've never stopped learning we're still learning so maybe you can't get everything perfect but overall, I sense, you know, that maybe the group found those sessions helpful and interesting and useful. Yeah, definitely. I feel the way Refugee Action structured the sessions really helped. And I think Lulu mentioned this, you know, we really wanted to learn. We went, we wanted to upskill ourselves as well. 85% of the experts by experience group wanted to learn something. And I think having that learning session at the start of the session, you know, and having the feedback session and the second on the second part of the session really helped us, engaged us more. You know, for example, you know, we did the understanding audience behavior. And then we ended up working on the BBC Radio 4 appeal, which raised, if I'm not wrong, uh, Lulu, was it 35,000 or? 
<laughs> can't remember at the top of my head but yeah it raised, yeah yeah so it raised quite a substantial amount of money and then um what else I would say also you know the team allowed us to you know we co-facilitated some of the sessions so we were able to gain those co-facilitating skills you know I did a session on how to write to be a guest editor for the newsletter which I think coming from someone with lived experience sharing it to the group that created more trust you know as well and also give them confidence to think oh, I can be a guest editor next year <laughs> yeah so it really helped and I think building on that confidence self-esteem you know we felt valued success was so important to, to us you know seeing the Christmas cash appeal be successful Lulu and her team shared the learnings and how much the Christmas cash appeal brought in we, we were so proud that we contributed to those campaigns and also it had a positive impact on our mental health. And I think this was done by the way the session was structured. Having icebreakers at the start, we could, you know, get to know one another. You know, we had really funny sessions. You know, some of the sessions were really funny. You know, what, what is your favorite meal or how do you write? Uh, we had like sharing your language, you know, how do you say thank you in your own language? During Christmas, we had a social event. We played games, you know, and that helped us understand the British culture as well in one way or another. And I think it was also a gateway to other opportunities for the participants. Other participants also ended up becoming the Re Refugee Action Board members. So I think it did, in terms of confidence, in terms of upskilling, people did move on to other roles. I moved into employment as well. I think one of the reasons I applied for my role at City of Culture, I was really passionate about creativity and social change. And the only way I learned this was through those sessions, seeing how being creative can create an appeal, can create a campaign that you know, moves people. And yeah, and that's why I, I applied for my role at City of Culture. Well, congratulations, Shukri, on stepping up and being so generous with your time and effort and your passion to help refugee action. Uh, but also it is so good to hear that your sense for you and some of the other people who are involved, it has helped them in some of these other ways as well. I get a strong sense that it has been win-win in a, a genuine sense. My problem now is there's so many more things I want to ask you, but you know that's plenty for one episode because I find if I go too far over half an hour in a single episode, it's a bit much for a single listen. So thank you so much for today. I wonder if we might do another quick episode where we might touch on applying the same approach to, for instance, major donors and corporate fundraising and so on. And maybe if we could hear a little bit more about when you were the guest editor for the newsletter, Shukri, because that sounds like interesting detail as well. And or any other learnings, basically, for the listener. But for now, Shukri Adan and Lulu Smithick, thank you so much for coming and sharing your ideas on the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So I hope you found the conversation helpful. If you did and you've not yet subscribed, please do that today so you don't miss out on all the other episodes we've got coming up, including another episode with Shukri and Lulu about other fundraising streams that have been improved by shifting power in this way. And if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to help spread the word, either to colleagues or on social media, so that we can help as many charities as possible with these examples. You can find Lucy Smithick and I on LinkedIn and on Twitter, I am at Woods underscore Rob. To see a full transcript and a brief summary of the episode, go to the podcast section of our website, 
which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about the live weekly masterclasses and library of my best training films that people can access 24-7, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. Or if you're the leader of a team and you'd like a more effective alternative to using occasional conferences or one-day courses to help your team's ongoing learning, then team memberships of the club compare very favorably, both in terms of the ongoing difference they make for your team and affordability. So if you'd like to find out more about team discounts to the Brightspot Members Club, do send me a message via the Brightspot Fundraising website. Thank you so much for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising and I look forward to sharing more examples and ideas with you very soon. Mm -hmm.